From Advisory Board, we're bringing you a radio advisory. My name is Rachel Woods. You can call me Ray. Welcome to the second episode in our financial impact series. This time, our conversation is going to be all about payers. To have that conversation, I brought my colleague, Rachel Sokol. Hey, Rachel. Hi, you can't call me Ray, though. Doesn't work. I think that's going to be okay for this episode. This is a moment where the nickname really works. So Rachel, tell us a little bit more about what you do at Advisory Board. I lead our research for health plans. So of course the Advisory Board works with hospitals and health systems, but I lead our work for health insurance companies. So the large national firms, number of blues plans, provider-sponsored plans, regional Medicaid plans, we work with a really good mix of organizations. Which is, of course, why you are absolutely the best person to be having this conversation with. I am definitely a person to be having the conversation (laughs) with and the one that agreed to the podcast invitation. So here I am. But I like to think that, you know, the team and I have learned some things over the years. My first question is, I want you to take us back to the financial state of payers before the pandemic actually hit. Tell me what that looked like. So if I think about where payers were, you know, really over the past 10 years, so think about it, post-ACA, largely they had been doing really well. We had been riding a pretty good wave of employment across the country. Employers were starting to offer richer benefits. We saw more retail clinics, more navigation services, more telehealth utilization, and now we're seeing even more, fewer narrow networks, fewer things like that. Medicaid was expanding. Health plans had seen the ACA exchanges start to be a more stable profit center after a a pretty rocky start. I would say there was also a number of really exciting technology innovations that were coming in AI for prior auth, for clinical needs, for identifying members. And you'd seen really over the past 10 years, a number of new insurance companies, which I think is not that happens every day. Someone wakes up and decides to start an insurance company, but we saw a number of really tech-enabled companies, Oscar, Bright, Devoted, Clover, start in the health insurance space. So largely, it sounds like things were actually pretty good for, for payers financially. They were. They were doing well. Coverage was at the highest rate it's ever been. So the uninsured rate was was really low. And they started to develop, I think, a lot of really also exciting partnerships with providers and with health systems. So it was a good time to a good time to be a payer, I guess. Hmm. All right. Now let's fast forward to today. How is COVID-19 financially impacting payers in the short term? In the short term, I would say that payers are largely going to weather this unchanged. I don't see and in my conversations with health plans that this is really going to derail or accelerate payers' financial outlook in one direction or the other. Yes, I think some smaller health plans might be more at risk. Certainly larger health plans are more stable. But by and large, they should have a fairly mild impact. Hmm. It does, of course, depend on just the pandemic itself. On the one hand, if it's mild, you could see less elective care, less emerging care, lower medical spend, could even mean rebates for purchasers. If it's more severe, they could see a lot of COVID-related utilization. They would need to cover it and do so without asking members to do anything out of pocket. So that could lead to additional medical spend for them and potentially less profitability. But overall, both from a payer financial health, but more importantly, a societal perspective, I would expect payers to be 
more on the the mild impact of the pandemic where the reduction in elective care is enough to compensate for the additional COVID-related care. Okay, so let's talk about some of these more specifically. So you mentioned the pandemic itself is going to be a key variable on factors impacting payer finances. What are some of the other key factors impacting payers right now? The other things I would think about are their general financial health just as an organization that has a lot of money invested in the stock market. So take all of the healthcare utilization aside, the investment income that a lot of payers have is going down just like my 401k, Ray, and your 401k, <laughs> all just down, 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 really, really try not to look at that ever, if, if humanly possible. Not looking at it. Don't look at it. It's never a good idea. And if you do, just have tequila and, and it'll all be better. So I don't think health plans are drinking tequila and looking over their financials. I would, I would hope not. But they are looking at their, at their capital investments and thinking, is this enough to fund a lot of the really innovative things that they've done over the years, in particular with regard to digital health, with clinical care programs? And so that's an area that I really see impacting them quite heavily. Hmm. I'm curious, is there anything that might surprise our listeners that's having an impact on, on plans right now? I would say one thing that could surprise our listeners is just how much of a role public policy plays into plan success in every area, in particular, how quickly changes in policy at the state and federal level can lead to really big swings in plan revenue. So take something like you know individuals having to defer premium payments on their exchange products or employers asking for more leniency in paying premiums, the policy and the regulations around that will have a big impact on payer cash flow because payers still have to pay claims even if the premiums aren't coming in. And so you hope that they will come in eventually and that you know government will continue to fund them or guarantee them in some way. Because if not, you could see some really big unfunded mandates that plans would have to meet and have to draw on their reserves in order to be able to do so. Now I want you to actually roll the tape forward a little bit. So in the short term, it sounds like plans aren't nearly as impacted as other parts of the healthcare industry. What are some of the things that you're tracking about the financial impact on plans in the long term? The biggest one is really the uninsured rate. We have never, as a society, seen this many claims for unemployment insurance. We've seen just a huge unraveling of the labor market in a very short period of time. And with that comes a lot of instability in the employer-sponsored insurance space. Now, what's different than 2008 is that now folks have somewhere to go. They can go to Medicaid and states that have expanded it. They can go to the individual market and purchase things on the exchanges. And we aren't going to have a stable labor market for some time. So all of that bouncing back and forth from uninsured to individual to Medicaid to employer and back again is going to be something that plans have to manage. They're going to have to think about how do I onboard members really quickly? How do I market to them in a different way? It's going to be a much more fluid time for probably the next couple of years, I would think. And I think this is a big reason why I'm seeing a lot of comparisons in the media between right now the the COVID crisis and the pandemic we're dealing with and what we went through as an industry in 2008 and 2009 during the Great Recession. 
tell me if you think that is a good comparison to be having right now. Employers are going to need to lower their healthcare spending in some way just to maintain solvency as an organization. In 2008, one of the big ways that they did it was by pushing a lot of cost responsibility, things like deductibles, onto their employees themselves. So this is where you saw the rise of high deductible health plans. And we are now at the point where over 50% of the employer-sponsored market has some sort of deductible over $1,000. Many of them have deductibles that are in the two and $3,000 range. I don't think you will see employers continue in that direction for a couple of reasons. One, it's a lever that they've already pulled and, they've, and they pulled it pretty hard. And two, there's a fair amount of evidence in the literature and, and in talking to health plans that deductibles alone actually aren't enough to get people to change their healthcare behavior. They aren't a great tool to get people to make smarter healthcare decisions. The second reason why I think that you might see fewer employers looking to cut healthcare benefits the same way they did in 2008 is that this is a health-related recession, and it's not a great look to cut health benefits for your employees during Mm -hmm. a pandemic. Does it mean that some of them will do it? Probably. But you aren't going to see these massive shifts that, that I think we saw a number of years ago. In talking to health plans, we see a couple different directions that they could go. They could go more towards the micromanaging. So they could say, all right, deductibles, we're okay, but we need to go even further. We need to really narrow the network. We need to hire our own concierge services. We need to hire our own direct primary care networks and get really, really prescriptive in how their employees use their benefits. Second way that they could go is they could say, you know what, I'm a local employer and I just don't want to do this anymore. And Hmm. now with the ACA, there's a couple off ramps that I could send my employees to. I could, instead of funding benefits, I could fund something called a ICHRA or Individual Choice Health Reimbursement Account. So money that the employer sets aside for individuals to buy insurance on the exchanges. And they could say, you know what, here's the money that I was paying you through premiums. You go and make your own decision and it's up to you how you want to make those trade-offs. And of course, one of the reasons why this crisis is going to be different than what we saw more than a decade ago is because there's just an expanded safety net and additional options that didn't exist in 2008. There is. In 2008, if you were an employer that decided to stop offering health benefits, you were really vilified in the press and you were seen as heartless. And you can make the argument that if an employer is doing that right now, they are enabling consumer choice and they are you know, just letting their employees make their own decisions. I think that is a a pretty hard spin, and maybe I should go work PR for some of those organizations, but it is a, it's not an all or nothing anymore. There's a couple, there's a couple middle grounds where employers could go. We'll be right back with more radio advisory after this short break. Remember to subscribe to Radio Advisory on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. When you subscribe, you will get the latest episodes delivered to you as they become available. And if you like the podcast, leave a rating or review. So Rachel, it strikes me that we're having a conversation about the financial impact of a pandemic on different parts of the healthcare industry. And for payers, things are largely okay, or at least they have been so far. So I'm curious... 
what can executives at health insurance companies be doing to support the hospitals and the ambulatory surgery centers and the physician groups who are deeply impacted by the pandemic? I'm glad you asked that question. The biggest thing that plans should be doing for these providers that are feeling a lot of strain, and I would say that a lot of them are, is really shoring them up financially. Plans always talk about the amount of investment that they have in their providers, the amount of collaboration that they like to have with their provider partners, how they are creating these you know, value-based care contracts that are a way for them to help providers with their long-term financial sustainability. And this is an opportunity for them to really prove it, to prove that they are partners to their delivery system. And it is going to be an opportunity for them to offer advanced payments in a lot of ways. And I should say a number of them are. We're seeing them amend some of the contracts that they have in place for value-based contracts or risk contracts, altering those so that providers aren't you know, having to pay back a tremendous amount of money because of these unforeseen consequences from the pandemic. But ultimately, this is an area where plans may be facing, and a lot of them are, the question of whether they need to actually acquire the provider systems themselves. And I'm talking more about Hmm. physicians, but it is an opportunity for them to probably accelerate a lot of the thinking that they've had of, do we want to own physicians as a health plan? Do we want to own more physicians if we own some? And just given where a lot of physician practices right now are, a lot of them are probably thinking about acquiring physicians and creating the the closest of partnerships that you can, I would say. So big picture, are payers going to be worse off, better, or the same when this is all over? Largely the same. And I feel like that's a bit of a cop-out answer. Certainly there are small ones that could face pressure, especially if you are a small employer who had really been serving the small group, fully funded market, you're probably at risk of, of going out of business. But right now, I'm not worried about payers for payers' sake. The biggest indicator of their health is less about what happens to them and more about what happens to the provider community. And are they still able to create networks that offer access to high-quality providers? That's the bigger question of what's going to impact payers than anything else. So Rachel, I have one final question for you, and it's a question I'm asking everyone on the podcast. What advice would you give to executives this week? Provider executives or payer executives? Let's do both. Let's start with uh, payer executives. I would really think about what access is going to look like in the next six months. We talked about this earlier about different kinds of partnerships and how ownership structure is going to change. We see huge telehealth use now. There's a question of if that will continue, but I'd really encourage plans to think about what does their network look like in the fall? Will physicians have enough business to support their practices and continue meeting member needs? Are we going to see all care continue to be done virtually? What will come back to physical offices and when? And then as the plan, what does that mean for how you think about encouraging the right kind of utilization at the right site at the right time? There are different tools that plans are going to have to do because the network's just going to look really different. And how about for provider executives? For provider executives, I would say talk to your payers. Talk to them about the options that you're considering for 
keeping your business afloat, whether it is saying, you know, we need these types of advanced payments for this long, and this is the type of relationship that we want to have with you on the other side. Be open about the acquisition requests that if you're a small physician group, you might be receiving to think about is the payer someone that you might want to be a closer partner with. Just start talking to them about what you need from the contracts that you have for your quality contracts and your risk contracts. Where do you feel really confident that you'll be able to execute those? And where do you feel like maybe we should be extending the term of these or trying to rework them in such a way that keeps the spirit of them in place? Thank you, Rachel, so much for coming on to the podcast. What else do you have going on in your world right now? I have two small children. I have a three-year-old and a one-year-old boy. So I spend most of my day just saying gentle with your brother over and over and over again. Amazing. So far, I went into this quarantine with two small children, and I am very hopeful that I will come out (laughs) with the same two small children. Well, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Rachel, and I'm sure we'll have you back. Thanks, Ray. Thanks so much for tuning in to the second episode in our Financial Impact series. Next week, we're tackling the financial impact on ambulatory surgery centers. And if you missed our first episode on COVID-19's impact on hospitals, be sure to give that a listen. And as always, we're here to help. No, I'm not going to say that. I was going to say, thanks for keeping your kids quiet. (laughs) I'm not going to say that. Okay.